My name is Joe Mueller. Um, I am a member here at Remedy Church, and I have uh, the, the pleasure and the privilege um, and the, the task this morning of, of speaking to us all uh, from God's Word. And so I, I wanted to start out this morning uh, just asking a, a sort of a very simple question, right? And, and this question is, is what, what do you need? At the, at the very core of your being that transcends the time that you're in, the circumstances that happen to be happening to you, uh, the place, the location that you are, what are the needs that you have that go to the very core of your being? The same needs that are true of, of every other human uh, in all of existence. What are the things that you need? Now, in, in, in my, my family, we have a, a Christmas tradition. We've, we've started this thing where we give five gifts. Generally, it's five categories of gifts. Let's just put it that way. Five categories of gifts. We give something to eat, something to wear, um, something to read, something you want, and something you need. And so as, as every Christmas, I am forced to think about what I need because I have people who love me who want to buy me things, right, um, and give me presents on Christmas. And, and I personally have a very hard time with that last need, right? I, I just, for, for whatever reason, I can't think of things that I need that would make my life easier or better or um, that would satisfy something that's going on. But thankfully, right, I have a wife who's very observant, and she often supplies my needs for me without me even knowing it, right? And so I'm very blessed in that way. But this Christmas, I've been particularly thinking about need. And, and what often happens with, with this Christmas tradition is, is generally I give simply two wants, right? And, and just replace one of my wants for my needs, um, and, and, and I was thinking about how that happens and, and how that's, that's actually very common, right? That, that's something that happens all the time. Um, an, an example may, may happen sort of with food, right? You, we all have a need to eat. That's pretty clear. That's pretty common. Everybody recognizes that. But at, at, my, at my work, they have these peanut butter cookies. And on top of the peanut butter cookies, they break up Reese's peanut butter cups all over the top of them, and then they bake them. So like every time you take a bite of your, the peanut butter cookie, you're taking a bite of a peanut butter cookie and a Reese's peanut butter cup, right? So they're, they're like delicious. They go great with coffee. In fact, they go great with everything. But at, at work sometimes, right, I can, I can feel hunger right in my belly, a genuine need, but then I think about this cookie, right? And then all of a sudden my I, I want this cookie. I desire this cookie. And then, then my, my want for the cookie becomes so overwhelming that all of a sudden, in my mind anyway, the cookie has become my need. I, I need this cookie. I may, I may, I may talk to my, my uh, coworker, right, and be like, oh, that cookie sounds so good right now. I just, I just got to go get one. I need it, right? And, and that cookie, in, in this case, it's silly, it's tried, but, but that, that happens all the time. It happens to each one of us in many different ways, in many different circumstances. And so that, that need becoming, a, or that want, supplanting a, a true need happens to us in, in many different ways of our lives and in, in many different ways. And it's, it's as varied as there are people here in this audience, right? It happens to all of us in a different way. But what I want to do today is I, I want to get us back to some of those core needs that we have. There's, there's going to be five of them today, and they're all coming from Colossians chapter 1, which is going to be our, our text today. But there are five core needs that I want us all to, to help get back to in our lives. Because th this want, this wanting becoming needing is not good, okay? It is not what we want to have happening. If you look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, or what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And let's remember that. We want to discern the will of God. 
that's going to become important for us later. But the renewal of our minds, us thinking more rightly about things, is important. Okay? It is important that we think and we see and we perceive the world around us truly. Reality must be real and not just the subject of our experience. So let us, we're going to try to let the word of God do its work through the spirit to transform our minds through the preached word. Colossians 3, 9 through 10 is also going to be helpful to help frame this discussion that we're going to have today. It says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, Colossians also shows us that our creator is Jesus. So renewed after the image of Jesus is another way that we can say this. And so we want to be more like Jesus today. And that is what I hope we are able to do by challenging some of the things that, that, that we may think we need, but getting back to the roots of what we really do need. So what is our passage today? And it's going it, to, it could be a little um, strange that I'm, I'm speaking of need, but it, it, I'm, our passage is a prayer. And it's, it's a little bit of a prologue to a prayer. I'll, I'll read the, the whole passage just for some context. We always thank God, uh, verse 3, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So there, uh, there are going to be five, again, five needs that we're going to explore in this text. But how does, how does this prayer begin? And this, this prayer begins with thanksgiving. If you see that in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the, the source of this thanksgiving is simply the fact that these people are Christians. Right? If, if you look in, in verse 4, Right? It says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. The other thing is that he's thankful for is that the church's love, continuing in verse 4, and of the love that you have for all the saints. And, and the next thing that he's thankful for is the church's hope. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now faith, hope, and love right, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. These are often, these three, faith, hope, love, are used to, to simply summarize what it means to be a Christian. We have a faith, we have a love, and we have a hope. These are fruits. Paul is thankful for the fruits of something that has gone on, something that has been produced in the life of these believers. And so the, the question becomes, what produced this? What produced this faith, this hope, and this love? It was an encounter of a sort, right? It was a counter with Jesus. And it was a counter with the gospel. If you look at in verse 5, right, that this, this gives us sort of the smoking gun. Of this, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So our first great need is this. 
You need to hear the gospel. Again, now this is a need that transcends time, place, and circumstance. It is a need that goes deep down into your core. And, and there, are, there are some quick observations that I want to make about what it means to hear, hear the gospel. Hearing the, the gospel requires social interaction, right? We need to hear from human agents. If you look at uh, Colossians 1, 5b through 6a and 1, 7, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. It has come to them in a place via social means, right? Just as you learned it from Epaphras, that go to 1, 7 for that. So for sure, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves, right? That is good and right and true, and we hear that a lot, all right? But we do need to hear the gospel from other human beings. There are lots of different ways that we can hear the gospel. We can hear the gospel from person-to-person communication via cell phone, a face-to-face meeting, a text message. We can write letters to each other or emails or text messages, right? There are lots of different ways that we can expose each other to the message of the gospel. But hearing the gospel does require a human to do it. A human has to be the person who's sharing. Colossians 1.7, again, just as you learn it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Epaphras needed to speak in order for the gospel to be heard. He had to speak human sentences to human hearers in a place to a specific set of people. And so the question becomes, who are you hearing the gospel from? Is it a friend? Is it a child? A spouse? A stranger? And where are you hearing the gospel? In what place? Is it in your home? Is it at work? Is it at a restaurant? Is it just at church? Is it at community groups? If, if we have a great need to be hearing the gospel, I would encourage all of us to increase the number, right, of gospel-centered conversations that we have. Because our, our, our great need, right, is not that we have sort of problems fixed. Our great need isn't so much that you know, we, we share our struggles with each other because we want them to fix them for us. We share what's going on in our lives and we expose our lives to others because we need them. We need them to share the message of the gospel to us in those moments and in those times, right? We could be at our highest high or our lowest low and our, our need is always the same. We need to hear the message of the gospel. So if we need to hear the gospel, I think a very valid question to ask is, well, what is the gospel? If we need to hear it so much, if, if it's a great need that goes to the core of our being, what is it? And so, so firstly, it, it's good news about what has been accomplished by Jesus on our behalf. It is a work done, not a work to do. It is a feat accomplished, not a feat to accomplish. It is a victory won, not a, work, or not a victory for us to win. Just, just look at how Paul talks about it, right? We have Colossians 12 through 14. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And, and again, Paul can't get away from the gospel in this first chapter of, of Colossians, 19 through 22. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach for her, before him. The gospel then is a message that God in the flesh came into the world 
and reconciled to himself all things. If you've, if you missed that message in the whole season of Christmas, here it is three days later, right? That we, though living in the domain of darkness, hostile and alienated from God, evil in our deeds and our mind, were redeemed and transferred into the kingdom of Jesus through faith. Do you believe this today? Is this message sweet to you? Do you want to hear this message over and over and over again? Does this message matter to you when you're at your lowest? And does it matter to you when you're at your highest? Do you experience hearing this as your need? Paul thinks you do. But not only you. The good news of what Jesus has done has an objective. It has a goal. It has an aim. It has an end point. Matthew twenty four fourteen. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And this is your second great need that Paul is unveiling to us. You need the gospel to bear fruit and increase. Just look at Colossians 1.6. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Now, the, the language that Paul here, that he's employing is Edenic. It's of that of a garden. Gardens bear fruit and increase. Now, if you can remember all the way back to Genesis 1, 128, the first command God gives is what? Says, he says to fill the earth and to subdue it. And this was a command that God intended man to fulfill in the first temple, the Garden of Eden. Adam's offspring were to extend the borders of the garden and fill the earth with God's image bearers, us, humans. We were to partake in God's ruling the cosmos as his servants. We were to extend his rule and his reign over the whole face of the earth, enjoying the communion we had with him in the garden, and that would one day be consummated in heaven as the tree of life signified. But then, as we all know, right, the fall happened, sin entered the world, and man was exiled from the garden. And if we compress redemption history down to a line, Jesus comes, he dies, and he rises from the dead. And at the end of, of that sequence, what happens? Well, there's a great commission, right? Jesus commands his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. In Luke, he, he puts it a, sort of a, a little differently. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. So you see, Christians too have a goal, an objective. We are to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. We are to go make disciples, Christ followers, God glorifiers of the world. And, and this sort of imagery also extends into the, the parent-child relationship. If you see um, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they had sons and they had daughters. Genesis 5.3 says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. See, Adam and Eve, they bore fruit and they increased. Now, in, in the New Testament, Paul often uses the, the language of a child, child parent-child relationship. Paul calls those he fathered in the Lord his children. We have 1 Timothy 1-2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. In 1 Corinthians 4-14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And it's scattered throughout. It's all over the place in the New Testament. Paul also encourages believers to image him as he images Christ. 1 Corinthians Four, or sorry, 11.1, one. be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You can also see 2 Timothy 3.10, where Paul talks to Timothy about how he's, he's followed him in, in the various persecutions and uh, teaching, um, various things like that. So in, in both of these images, we have both the cultural commission and the great commission, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. Go make disciples. 
we have a picture of the people of God filling the whole earth. God's people spread out into the world and they bear and they grow much fruit. Now, it's important to note here that Paul is talking about geographic, physical, numerical growth of the church in the world. God's people grow. It's what we do. It is our DNA. And there are two distinct subjects of this fruit bearing and increasing. The church in the world and the local manifestation of the church in Colossae. God wants the church to grow in the world here in Rock Hill and here at Remedy. Now, you you may be asking, I've talked a lot about things going on outside of us, right? They're out there. Some of it's here with us. So how does this migrate need? How is this something that I desperately need to have accomplished? There there are two reasons that that I want us to, to hit on for this. The first is that you need the gospel to grow in the world because you have brothers and sisters who are currently living in darkness. They haven't even heard the gospel. They haven't believed. They have no hope. They have no love. They are out in the world perishing. They need to call on the Lord to be saved. And to call, they have to believe. And to believe, they have to hear. And to hear, they have to have a preacher come and be sent. Here's here's a story that helps illustrate this point. There was a poor man who sat at the gate of the city begging. One day, after getting a few pieces of coin from his panhandling, he takes a short walk off the road to the hovel he sleeps in near his only source of water, the city sewers. On his way, he encounters bandits who beat him close to death, take his money, take his clothes, and leave him for dead along the banks of the sewers, a complete bloody mess. Far off, the richest man in the city sees the poor man and has compassion for his plight. He sends one of his adopted sons to the man. The poor man is cleaned, his wounds are bound, and fresh, unstained garments are given him. The rich man comes to the poor man and says, I have seen your great need, and I want to give you something. Would you be my child? Astonished, the poor man accepts and gladly takes his place as a member of the rich man's family. A few days later, the poor man is in the presence of the rich man when a messenger arrives. Lord, bandits have attacked the next town over. Many of the poor have been beaten and had all they have taken away. The poor man's eyes fill with tears and rage as he remembers his own encounter with the bandits and how he was saved from their attacks. The rich man sees the tears welling up in the poor man's eyes and says, Will you go to this town for me? The poor man replies, Yes, Lord. Then go, my son, the rich man says, and gather up all your brothers in that land for all that you clean, all that you bind, and all that you clothe will be sons to me. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's Matthew 9, 37 through 38. And so this harvest is our very family. They are our brothers and sisters bought by the blood of our Lord. And all that they require is somebody to tell them. Because how, how can they call upon his name unless they hear? And so you also need... You also need the gospel to bear fruit and increase because God has sworn by its inevitability. It is going to happen, and you need God to be proven faithful. Numbers 14.21 says, But as truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's Numbers 14.21. God has sworn, he has made a promise that his glory will fill the whole earth. And we've already seen that that is God's plan for his church and for his people is that we would go and fill the earth. That we would bring God's kingdom. God's kingdom would come, right? His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
that we would break into this world and, and, and bring God's rule and reign through his church to this whole world. And again, why is this my need? I, I, I think that, that we think about this because it helps us fight the myopic tendency of rich, rich people, right? We are all extremely wealthy. We all have everything that we need by the, for, for the most part, right? We have food. We have shelter for the most part. And we can look at a verse like this and immediately skip over the grand plans of God for the world and begin to focus on us. For the words, and also in you, right? We, we hear, and also in you, and immediately conjure up in us the singular you. We ask, how is the gospel bearing fruit and increasing in me? And that's a good question to ask. I want you to ask that question, okay? But it should be down here on the, on the level of questions that we're asking. Because God, this verse is not mainly about you. This verse is about what God is doing in the world and in the local manifestation of, of his church. The Bible is not only talking about you. The Bible isn't only calling you to grow in your own spiritual garden. Instead, it's calling you to see the world as a theater of God's drama. God is doing things in Remedy. He is doing things in Rock Hill. He is doing things in America, and he's doing things to the edge of the world. And God wants you to be a part of it. He wants you to to be a, a member who is actively uh, creating the growth that he, he, has, uh, he has ordained to occur. And so the question becomes, who can you be praying for? Who can you be sending? How can you be part of more gospel conversations? Our, our third great need uh, we're going to get into in just a second. But so, so we've seen that you need to hear the gospel. You need the gospel to bear fruit and increase throughout the entire world. And so now we're getting sort of the, the meat of Paul's prayer, the actual prayer that he prays without ceasing for the church. And so from the day we heard, Colossians 1.9, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, what, I have to admit, when I, when I read Paul say, we have not ceased to pray for you, I'm kind of astonished by that. I, I think that that's kind of amazing and cool. Because it's in scripture, right? So we know that it's true and it's factual. But he says, I have not, we have not ceased to pray for you, meaning uh, Paul and, and Timothy. What does he mean? Like, how long is, it, is the time between he heard them, heard about them from Epaphras, and the time that he's actually writing this letter? How long of an amount of time is that? Well, it can either be a very short amount of time, right? And so Paul's claim here is very unimpressive, right? Uh, I think most of us could say that we could, we could probably manage a day, right, of unceasing prayer, where we, like, we pray without ceasing for somebody. Like, we, we remember for the day to pray for them, right? But I know I struggle with, like, a week, right? There, there are prayer requests that go on in my community group that I, I struggle with to remember. We have community group on Friday, on Sunday. And so, to, to me, this is, this is mind-boggling. And then, when, when, you, when you look at it, Many, many people think that this took up as many as five years between the time Paul heard about the church here and the time that he writes this letter. Five years. I, I have not sustained prayer for any single person for that amount of time. Ever. Five years. When it, when it gets down to it, prayer is a discipline, right? It is something that we have to work at doing. It is a labor. 
It is not something that we just imagine will always happen if we hope it will, right? It is something that requires discipline. And and I think I am challenged by Paul's discipline here, and I think it's a good challenge for all of us to uh, sort of strive for, is to be that type of person who prays. So we have not ceased to pray for you. But let's get into the meat of sort of what Paul is praying here. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So your next great need is this. You need to know God's will. And you need to know God's will very, sort of very simply, right? So that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and you can be fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. But God, God's will, that, that can be kind of a biggie for some of us, right? What does it mean, God's will? God's will can be sort of mysterious. Kind of hokey pokey, right? Like, if I'm, if I'm in God's will, then nothing bad is ever going to happen to me, right? We, we can sort of think of it that way. If I, if I am in God's will, things won't be hard for me. Things are going to be easy. I'm, I'm going to be able to just keep, keep the, my wheels churning. I'm going to be able to get tons and tons of stuff done. I'm going to be able to do it. Do it all. And I, I think that that's um, just not true. I mean, to, to put, it, put it rather bluntly. Because um, I, don't, I don't think God's will necessarily works that way. Because, I mean, if you look at the lives of the apostles, right? The lives of the apostles were not an, a never-ending ladder to success, right? They didn't get better. Their lives get better and better and better and better. Without fail... Each of them was killed for their faith, right? They were all martyred. They were all put to death. So it, it can't be that, that God's will is, is some sort of hokey pokey thing that if I, if I get in it, then all the, everything happens to me the way that exactly as I want it to happen and no bad stuff comes my way and I can get through life very easily and I can know I'm in God's will because no bad stuff happens. And when bad stuff happens to me, I know that, oh, I got out of God's will some way because life is hard. I, I, I just don't think that it's that way. Knowing God's will is, is, is very simple, but it's not, it's simple, but it's not easy, right? I think that's fair to say. I think that there are ways, right, where um, knowing what to do is easy, but then knowing how to do it can be a little bit difficult. But I want, I want to summarize God's will in, in two ways, because I think it's simple. I think it can be summarized into two things. The first thing is it can be summarized into his obedience to his law. And the, the second thing is imaging his son. So it, if we look at the Bible and if we're reading it, there are three times when, when the Bible uses the phrase, this is God's will. Right, that, that should be a pretty good cue to us what God's will is, right? Because it says, this is God's will. All right? So the first is 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Say that five times fast. Um, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then the last one is 1 Peter 2.15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of, uh, put, to, put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So highlighted in these three things are, are, are sanctification, thanksgiving, and good works. And so sanctification, it's, it's very simple. It's, it's growing in conformity to God's law. 
It is the process of putting to death the deeds of the flesh and walking in obedience to God's law. So in, in Exodus, right, uh, 20, it says, uh, do not bear false witness. So we need to put to death lying. That's bearing false witness. And alternatively, we need to speak the truth in love, right? Those are sort of the, the flip side of God's law. Thanksgiving is the basic emotional and mental state of the believer. Thanksgiving should characterize our lives. And it is also the root emotional and mental motivation for obedience. Thanksgiving is what fuels our desire to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to walk in our newness of life. And good works are the process, or, or the outpouring of that sanctification process. As we stop lying, we do good things by speaking the truth. So three different ways, three different verses, in three different contexts, you have um, the authors of the New Testament saying that you need to obey God's law. God's law is good. Obey it through thanksgiving. Also, another sort of key, key portion of this is imaging God's son, right? If you look at Colossians 3.10, it says, Do not lie to one another which Exodus 20, 15 tells us not to do when it says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put, on, put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of its creator. Earlier in Colossians, our creator is identified as Jesus. So it is God's law to speak truthfully. Here highlighted by the negative man, not to lie. It is then tied, right, to our new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of Jesus. Lawful obedience is therefore synonymous with Christ-likeness. We saw something similar with Jesus' own words, right? Matthew sixteen twenty four. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So as, as you are going about your life, I, I think the problem becomes when we turn one of our wants into one of our needs, okay? And, and what, what I mean here is, is I, I have been in situations in my life, and I'm sure you have, is what I, what I really wish God would have done is given me step-by-step -step instructions, telling me exactly what to do at every outcome and every turn, Right? That's what I desperately wanted from God. But God had already given me everything that I needed. He had already given me my roadmap. He already shown me what his law said and who Jesus was for me to follow in that in instance. I didn't need that step-by-step -step instructions. I didn't, God's, God's will for me was not mysterious. I didn't need to, to grope around for it and close my eyes and, and just grab. What I needed to do is I needed to go to God's word, right? I needed to find out, who is this Jesus? What would Jesus do here? Where, where, where is, where, where, are, there any, are there any commands in Scripture for the way that I should treat my boss? Are there any commands of Scripture about how, how I should treat my wife? There are very clear instructions in the Bible that touch on almost every single facet of our experience and our existence. And so our, our great need is to go to God's word. God's word is where his law can be found. God's word is where we can find an image of Jesus. And so we should go to God's word. We should come on Sunday morning and hear it preached corporately. We should have those times of, of personal devotion uh, to God's word. But we have to temper that with reading the, with the word in community, with, with Sunday morning, with, with community groups, because we often make the word mean whatever we want it to, right? We are, we are easy interpreters of what we want the Bible to mean to me. And so it's only in the context of community, of Christ's body gathered, that we can temper our own sinful uh, interpretations back to what, what God really says in his word. And we also have to read the word with the church. And this is probably one of the harder things because it does require a lot of effort and work. 
There are great documents that, that different churches, different bodies of Christ have created. They're, they're called confessions and catechisms. These help, uh, these are official sort of church documents that help us understand what God's law and what the gospel is. There are commentaries and sermons, and these are often penned by official church leaders of pastors and elders. And then there's other sort of literature on the third sort of tier um, that are just created by Christians at large. And so we need to go to this literature. We need to go to the word, and we need to read it with the church. Because we need to know the will of God. We need it desperately. Also, the the next thing that we need is we need to be strengthened. Look at Colossians 1.11. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? With all power, according to his glorious might. Now, what what pops into your head when you hear that? Uh, I I know for me, I, I I think of Moses, right, at the Red Sea. And he, he, he splits the sea by holding up his arms, right? That's, that's kind of amazing, right? You, I, I think of um, another prophet, right, who, who calls down fire from heaven, and it consumes his altar that has tons of buckets of water poured on it, and it consumes 500 prophets of Baal. I think about um, uh, some priests who are carrying the ark right on the poles the proper way, um, and they step into the Jordan, And then all of a sudden, the Jordan dries up and stands up in a wall miles away at another city, and the people of Israel walk across on dry ground. I think about another prophet who goes to this widow and creates this unending bowl of oil. He also raises her son from the dead by laying on his face, right, and and putting his hands on, on his hands. I think of things that Jesus did, how he, he would walk among a crowd and his little prayer tassels would touch somebody and they would be healed. I think about a woman who's bleeding for 12 years, just sneaks up in a crowd and grabs his cloak and then walks away. And immediately she's healed of her bleeding. I think of a little girl who has died, who's 12 years old, who dies. And then Jesus, who in the same sort of sequence where the girl comes and tells her to come forth and she's alive again. I think of a sick mother of Peter who, who is very, very sick, and Jesus heals her. I think of a, a Jesus who walks on water, right? I think of a Jesus who feeds 5,000 and 7,000. Now, that's power. That is something that I want and that I hope Paul is praying for me because I want to do that stuff. I think that that is terribly cool, right? That's pretty rad. I want that to happen. But Paul doesn't pray for that. And I, I think if we're honest, I think, I think we all might see what Paul prays almost as an afterthought, as something that's less important than what we can do for God. Because what does Paul pray? He says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Patience? Is that God's almighty power? I, 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 I mean, I am shocked. If I was Paul, I would have prayed for something good, right? But patience and endurance? Because, I mean... If we're honest, right, true power comes from what you can do, from charismatic gifts, from gifts of power, right? And, and to be sure, I'm saying that sarcastically, it doesn't. It can, but not always. To be sure, we, we need people to do things in the body. We need to be grateful that those things happen, that, that people get healed, right? That people proclaim the, the truth boldly, that people speak in languages to people who need to hear, Those are all good things, and we should value them. But we shouldn't only value them. That is not what we need in every single instance. The vast majority of the time, we just need patience and endurance. 
Because if you look at it, why? Why does Paul pray this? What is his motivation for praying for these people in this way? And, and I think it's, it's this. Paul realizes that life is hard. But life can be hard in, in a lot of different ways. Um, one of them is, is it can be hard because of the circumstances that happen to us. One of my uh, favorite movies is The Muppets Christmas Carol, favorite Christmas movie. Um, it's great. You should watch it. Um, all-time classic, in my opinion. And it's, I think, one of the best renditions of the Christmas Carol story. But anyway, um, there's a scene in it where um, the ghost of Christmas future, or whatever he's called, has taken Ebenezer Scrooge to Bob Cratchit's house. Um, and so this... This is the bleak future, right? It's the future that everyone gets sad about because Tiny Tim is dead. Tiny Tim is, has passed. He's, somehow he got sick or something happened to him, and he's no longer with the Cratchit family. Um, he has gone on, and they're talking about where he's buried, um, and they're talking about how they miss him uh, because I think it's their first Christmas without him. He's recently passed. Um, and Ebenezer, he turns to the ghost, and he says... Must there be a Christmas that brings this awful scene? How can we endure it? And, and I think that's a fair question um, because many of us uh, and ma- many people in the world, right, we endure that awful scene. There are moments when stuff like that happens where sadness invades our homes and our lives and it, it, the question, how can we endure it, is a valid one. And so I, I, I think we have to go back, right, to those, those first three things that, that people said that Paul was thankful for, for the church at Colossae, of why they were a Christian. The first is, is faith. We can endure the current suffering because we have faith. We latch on to the Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith, and we see what he has done on our behalf. He orchestrates our lives. He orchestrates our circumstances in such a way that nothing can separate us from his love, which is that second great thing that identifies us as Christians. We are the object of the love of the creator. He created everything, and he loves us. His love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me and on you. It reaches us at our highest highs and meets us at our lowest lows. There is nothing that can happen in all of our circumstances that can ever separate us from the love of God. And so, in hope, right, in hope, We can wait for this sure promise of God, for we are his and he is ours. His promise to us is very sure, more sure than any circumstances, more real than any reality rocking our world. Here at at Remedy, we sing a song and it, it goes, Oh my God, he will not delay my refuge and strength always. I will not fear His promise is true. My God will come through always. And for some of us, that always seems so far off. There are pains that we experience in this world that will not end until we are with Jesus forever in heaven. And that always, that delay can feel immense to us. But our great need, our great need then is for patience and endurance. To bear up under that suffering that each of us feels. And to make it through. By latching on to Jesus. Two more, two more quick reasons is, is an, another reason we need patience and endurance is because persecution is real. Suffering, especially suffering for doing good, are considered hallmarks of the Christian life. 
Matthew 5, 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 1 Peter 3, 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And, and lastly here is, is temptations we face. We need patience and endurance because of the temptations we face. And so what, what is temptation? Well, uh, there's a lot of ways that we can view or paradigms with which we can filter temptation. But essentially what, what I want to advance today is that temptation is an alternate version of reality, right? It is God did not say, if we look at the garden. God did not say that you would surely die. And so what happens to some of us, especially those of us who deal with, with sin that is besetting, sin that is habitual, is that we can suffer greatly. We can feel overwhelmed by the immediacy of our temptation. We can feel like the, my world is going to end if I don't give in. I want this so Badly. This is what I need right now. This is what I need to make it through. I have to have this. And to fight against his own false perception, this own false conception of the world, can be exhausting. It can be so painful. And we need endurance and patience to fight that fight, to not give in, to keep at it, so that one day, right, we can, we can get more along this path of sanctification, and we can put to death the deeds of our flesh. Because our, our mind is so, so caught up in, ah, I need this, when we really don't. When we really don't. And even if we know that, it can still seem so hard to fight. And so we need patience and endurance to make it through. We need patience and endurance to see the course and to fight the good fight and to run the race. And, and the, sort of the very last reasons why we need patience and endurance is because Paul and, and I do and the whole Bible really, 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 really wants you to be like Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, King of the nations, Lord of life, creator of everything, God incarnate, patiently endured the cross as a sign of his great and magnificent power. The cross is God's power displayed to all of us. And this, this being like Jesus, is the goal of Paul's petition the aim and focus of his persistent prayer for God's people. He wants the church at Colossae, and by virtue of it being written in the Holy Scriptures, us, the church at Remedy, to be like Jesus. And so finally, lastly, the last of our great needs in this passage is our need for thanksgiving for such a great deliverance. If you look at Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Why does the Bible identify thanksgiving as our, one of our great needs? Because thanksgiving is a primary motive for obedience. We are so overflowed with gratitude for what God has done for us on the cross and what God is doing in us in sanctification and making us more like Jesus and our ability to experience Jesus in our everyday life through obedience to his word and God's future plan, right, to consummate it all and to make us eradicate all the sinfulness in our death so that we could be 
glorified with him forever. And also because there's a logical tie between Colossians 1, the first part of Colossians 1.12, and the second part of Colossians 1.12. Right? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light is almost the same as saying giving thanks to the Father because he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. And also, thanksgiving is a great encouragement. That the word, Colossians 3.16, that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Have you ever met someone who's overcome with thanksgiving? Where what Christ has done for them provided an overpowering joy that was able to drown out the immediacy of the pain found in their circumstances. If you haven't, there's a a quick story. In in Acts chapter 5, you have the apostles. The apostles are are teaching and preaching in the, in the synagogue, or not in the synagogue, in the temple, and in Jerusalem from house to house. And the Sanhedrin don't like that. The people in charge don't like that Jesus is being proclaimed. And so they get arrested, they get freed from prison by an angel, and then they're in the temple preaching again, and some goons from the Sanhedrin come and, and take them to, to their council. Um, and they're so mad at them for explaining Jesus and preaching Jesus that uh, they want to kill him. They want to kill every single last one of the 11. And if, if that happens, right, if you think about it, they're, they're the leaders of the church. All the church leaders get killed. What do you think is going to happen to the church? Very good chance, right, Christianity ends there. But, but one, of the, one of the dudes is like, hey, you know, all the other leaders who got killed, their disciples, even though they may have been initially very you know, excited about it. Eventually they, they puttered out and their movement died. I think, I think the same thing is going to happen with these guys if they're not from God. But if they're from God, we probably don't want to kill them because then we would be seen as opposing God and that would be a bad idea. You don't want to oppose God. So they did the very kind thing and they just beat them. Right? They, they beat them. And so uh, after being beaten... In Acts 5.41, it says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, did their beatings hurt less? No. Did their beatings magically go away? Did they no longer have welts and bruises all over their bodies? The answer is no, right? They were not magically cured of of all their bruises. They, They probably still had some broken ribs. They probably still had some contusions all over their bodies. They probably still remembered the faces of their beaters. But what did their thanksgiving, what did their rejoicing produce? In Acts 5, 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They encouraged the brothers And so we too as a church and as individual members of it need thanksgiving to be an encouragement to others. So what I want to do is I just want to close. I want to close by by reading a little bit about who Jesus is and about what Jesus has done for us so that we can end this with thanksgiving in our hearts. Colossians 1.15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, 
he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so God, we come to you with five great needs. And Lord, these needs you have supplied. You have sent somebody so that we might hear the gospel. You are out in the world constantly causing your gospel to bear fruit and increase from here in Rock Hill to the very ends of the earth. You are the one who is doing it. You are the one who is revealing your will to us as we come to your word and see how it uh, confronts us and shocks us and changes the way that we, we think about things. You are the one through your Holy Spirit who illuminates your word to us. You are the one who su- supplies us with strength to be patient and to endure. You are the one who supplies all that we need for thanksgiving. And so God, we come to you needy. We come to you as people who need to be served by our great God. We have nothing to bring except for the gifts that you give us to bring. And so Lord, fill our hearts with praise and thanksgiving as we worship you in these songs. Lord, if, if it's our first time uh, thanking you or our millionth time, let it be sweet, let it be joyful, and let it be encouraging uh, to each other. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.